Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host, and glad you're here. This is round two with Thomas Moore. I spoke with him about four or five years ago on episode 50, and now we're getting close to 100, and so he's, uh, maybe it was four years ago, and, uh, and now we're celebrating almost 100th episode, and Thomas Moore is 98. Been a long time doing this, folks. It's a fantastic endeavor, and I'm glad you're here to uh, participate in the project. I'm going to introduce Thomas and then get some housekeeping details, and then we'll get started. Thomas Moore is the author of The Eloquence of Silence and 24 other books about bringing soul to our personal lives and culture, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. He has been a Catholic monk and university professor and is also a psychotherapist influenced mainly by C.G. Jung and James Hillman. His work brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of image, images, and imagination. I, I notice when I go through these episodes, I, I want to quote, I want to extract quotes, and I find myself wanting to quote Thomas a lot. Thank you for participating, Thomas. I greatly appreciate it, and it's, uh, it's great to have you continuing to support the project here at The Sacred Speaks. So I look forward to the next time. Uh, check him out at Thomas Moore Soul, T-H-O-M-A-S-M-O-O-R-E-S-O-U-L.com. Great website there. Uh, also, as far as news is concerned, we've got a workshop, another workshop coming up at Esalen, the 23rd through the 27th of October. So you can look below in the show notes and check out that link for our workshop on ecstatic experience, music, and Jung's Red Book. If that is of interest to you, please come on out and sign up, because we'll probably fill up pretty quickly. Also, just continuing the, the process, if you're interested in these ideas of psychotherapy and spirituality and how they come together, we've been working on a wellness center called the Center for Healing Arts and Sciences. My wife and I started this many years ago, and it mixes together the depth work, contemplation, psychotherapy, yoga, acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine. It's a really good place to do this work that this podcast has certainly been interested in looking at investigating. We've got a great team of folks that we work with closely and um, that, that are mindful about how they're approaching um, the work of healing and the work of suffering. So if you're looking for someone, check us out at the Center for Haas, H-A-S dot com. As always, The Sacred Speaks is... Um, of course, brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, also supported by Modern Nations with their song Clouds. And if you hang out to the end of the episode, you can listen to the whole entire selection. And I think that's it for now. We'll leave it there. Thanks for being here. Thank you for your support for this project. Please like and share and pass it along. That's how it grows. Uh, and again, if you're looking for somebody to do depth work or be introspective with, reach out to the Center. Enjoy the episode. We'll leave it there. Thomas Moore. This is cool, man. You and I connected a long time ago. It must have been like four years ago. And we were just chatting about, uh, at least my memory, is that I really enjoyed our discussion and... Um, the opportunity to reconnect with you is lovely. So welcome to the Thank Sacred Speaks. Thank you for, for joining up with me today. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So we're talking about elo the eloquence of silence. This this book you've written, uh, amongst many books you've written, we can meander around all those, but we're really going to dig into a subject that I think is really difficult for a lot of Westerners to grasp, um, <laughs> for a number of reasons. I, I but as I was reading this text, I got so excited because we're going to talk about. Eastern traditions and Western traditions and music and psychotherapy and oh my gosh, Joseph Campbell and his stories and so you've you've really provided us a, a lot of uh, a field of opportunity here. So thanks for that. Good, good. I want to begin uh, certainly just with a, a an open question for you. Um, of, of course, the significance of this book. But I want to do a little seed planting, so maybe you can navigate around this subject, uh, because this idea of kenosis is something that my wife and I were talking about this morning. I said, you know, it's really interesting. People are constantly going to Eastern traditions to, to experience or look for this idea of non-attachment or emptiness. And the irony is that Westerners have that in our, in the, uh, certainly in the Christian lineage and where the... In, in the Greek arena. Um, so would you introduce this idea of the eloquence of silence? What brought you to it? And then I've got a list of questions to dive in uh, as we navigate. Yes, I, uh, I don't know where to begin because, you know, when I was a kid, I was really a kid, I was a monk in a Catholic religious order. I, was, I started that when I was 13. <laughs> and I stayed with it until I was 26. So I learned a lot about silence. You know, that was a big issue for a monastic life. And the, so the idea of silence is very, very uh, familiar to me, and it's close to me. And I still like silence very much. I like quiet, too. Actually, I prefer <laughs> quiet to silence. Uh, quiet meaning I don't have to say nothing, you know, it's not that kind of silence, absolute silence, but it's living a basically quiet life, and I like that. I do that and like it, and I feel that even now, I'm 82 now, and I left the monastic life when I was 26, and I feel like I'm still living it to some extent, and part of that is to live a quiet life, a contemplative life. And there's a certain kind of, maybe not absolute, but a kind of emptying that goes on with that. You empty out the temptation to talk too much <laughs> and uh, to say too many things and speak unnecessarily. I mean, I don't do that to any extreme, to a fault, I think. But uh, I like the atmosphere of quiet, and I like to be quiet at times, like when I'm practicing therapy. Uh, I often note those times where the best thing for me to do is not say anything. Nothing, yeah. So those moments are really important, too. So what I'm saying in answer to your question is that this idea of uh, emptiness and silence has been part of my life since I can remember, practically. And I've never had a chance to really focus in on it. I, I became attracted to traditional stories and... and uh, passages I found in books that gave images of emptiness, like empty pots and empty, mm -hmm. empty hands and things. I, and um, 
sometimes I think when I'm at a restaurant that I'm supposed to meet someone and I'm sitting across from the empty chair when they don't show up, I think that that's really a, a good practice in emptiness. So I try to grasp the uh, deeper possibilities in such a moment. I take it as a sign that it's time to reflect on emptiness. Mm. What a beautiful image. I, I, the, my thought as you're saying that is that, and I don't want to bash Western anything. I love this tradition. I think it's very rich. I will critique it, and I think that's important. The, the criticism that came up was how often we're concerned about filling ourselves. You know, I, I, I spend a lot of time with psychotherapy folks that I'm working with, and there's, of course, you know, f from money to romantic partners to uh, a, a home to children to all kinds of filling our lives. The idea of emptiness seems kind of scary to a lot of folks, I think, or that there's something wrong, that, that, that in our aloneness that we're supposed to be lonely. Would you speak to that? Um, yes, the the idea that empty, when something is empty, that there's something wrong. Like if you're yeah. not speaking, what's wrong with you? Yes. Like, a, are you angry? Um, are you sad? Uh, what's wrong? I, the other image I have for this is uh, going to a, I guess I go to doctors more now, going to a doctor's office or a hospital, like let's say to have blood taken, something like that. Um, I'm sitting in a waiting room, which may or not be empty. And where I live, they're usually empty, quite empty. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a there's a television set on the ceiling, bolted into the ceiling. I don't understand that. That really is insane. Mm -hmm. and, uh, there it is. Mm -hmm. And what I do in that case then is I try to certainly avoid looking at this television set, but then to take in the emptiness of the space and the silence that is there and the waiting, because waiting is a kind of emptiness itself. And uh, that's a theme I love, I love to talk about. So there are all these different facets to being empty. It could be silence, it could be waiting, it could be uh, avoiding uh, unnecessary sound. Uh, there's so many things and it could be found like you just find yourself in a place that's empty and you take it in and make use of it. So um, you can make an art of it. You can design your life to be empty. Uh, there are many things, many ways of going about this. And the more I, I talk about it, the more I realize that this is a vast topic. You can write a whole book on. I might. <laughs> <laughs> Many books on. What, I, I project onto this that, um, and I said I was working with a couple last night, and I tend to say something like, "Well, that seems scary." And the the fella who's in the session, he's like, "You keep saying scary. I don't know that it's scary, and it's certainly my projection, but I don't think people are as connected with the scariness that does come up." because we're so often filling ourselves, filling the time, anxious oh, yeah. and insecure. So I, I, I'm, you mentioned this term, you know, the, at the beginning of your book of kenosis, and you're, you're populating this image with 
waiting as rather than bringing up anxiety that has me looking at my phone in two seconds, that I'm actually luxuriating in the spaciousness. And, and why? why? What do you say to somebody who's like, why in the world would I want to do that? I can get shit done here. You know? Well, if I understand what, what you're saying, uh, I would say to somebody that, uh, that the, the absence of hyperactivity or talking too much, all these different ways we fill up space, maybe from the anxiety of, you know, having to be quiet and then become, you become aware of things when you're quiet. You you hear things that are not, vis- that are not audible usually. You pay attention to things going through your mind, your imagination. And uh, that can be upsetting for a lot of people. And I think that for many, uh, being uh, busy, too busy, or talking too much is a way of keeping out all those other voices and uh, messages that are going on all the time. So it's a kind of a de- of defense to fill it up. Mm-hmm. So the emptying, if you can just sit there in silence or without talking, uh, that gives you a richer experience of life. You know yourself better. Um, you can probably make better decisions because you are in tune with yourself. There are many, many advantages of uh, of emptying out. What I like about what you're saying is that what I guess the image that came to mind was how often we make decisions, people make decisions based on money, for example. So it's, it's like if you're applying for a job and you've got three options, the way that you rank order them is based on how much money you're getting paid. But what I imagine you're getting at is that there might be other little voices that come up in the process that beckon you into different realities that aren't so beholden to that. Uh, is that is that a fair example? Oh, yes, that's a good yeah. example. I was yeah. thinking when you said that, of, uh, in my case, I, uh, I, I usually, for years now, I've had an auction for a new book that I want to publish. So in other words, several publishers will... Uh, gather together and and bid on the on the book mm. and i don't think in the past number of years i can't remember the last time we went with the person who offered the most money you know we're we're always looking for other things but to pay attention to those things you have to get away from the compulsion mm. of money and the thought that is sort of unconscious and in the in the air that, of course, you should always choose the most money, no matter what. But that's not, that's really not the best value, usually. Usually. So uh, I think that's a good example that you just gave. It reminds me of this scene in The Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf, they, they are in, they're in the caves down below, and they're trying to find the right direction, and nobody knows the way, so they all sit, and they're waiting. Yeah. And finally, he says, finally, he says, oh, it's that way. And somebody goes, well, how'd you find out? Did you just remember? And he goes, no, 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 I smelled it. Yeah. And I, I always loved that for the, like a, a different sense than we typically use. It's so often I remember or I see it. But to smell something out is kind of more of an ex- instinctual urge. Right, exactly. 
Now, here's an example. I don't know if I put this in the book or not. Honestly, I can't remember. But uh, Thoreau says that uh, when we go for a walk, which is he thinks is a, the best thing we could do, mm. you go for a walk. When you leave your your house, you shouldn't decide where to walk. You should just walk. Mm -hmm. Just walk out of your house and walk. And mm. and don't don't think about where you're going. Just go. And that's a kind of emptying. It's an emptying out of control and of uh, too much thinking and oh, so many other things you could associate with that. There are. But my God, what? The, I, yeah, what comes up is this idea of purpose, but it's not purposeful. I need to have a direction. You need to have a direction. <laughs> we always hear that. That's right. <laughs> You might imagine that I'm not a very good spokesperson for the purposeful life. Right. <laughs> well, then, then, then let's argue the opposite, because we hear about that a lot. This, what's your purpose? Critique that. Help me understand where you come from on this subject. Uh, I think that, uh, see, I, 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 well, let me start with this. I'm a musician, a composer. I've been doing that since I was in my teens. And and uh, one of the things we do in music and writing music is to, in my case, let the the uh, the performers make a lot of choices about what to do. So I might give them some suggestions on a musical score of what to do, but I don't spell it out. I may not give them the notes. I may not give them the time, the timing of it. They have to choose that, but I have I have something I have a design that they fit into, but they do a lot. So I think um, allowing life to happen is something mm. I think is very very important. Allowing life to happen, the Tao Te Ching says, "Let things take their course." I like that very much. So, um, and another aspect of it is uh, that. Purpose, I think, has got to be equivalent in psychology to ego. It's got to be, mm -hmm. captain tells you where to go and what you're going to do when you get there. But you don't need the captain. All you need to do is set out like on a, in a boat and float on the water. This is There's a wonderful passage in uh, Joseph Campbell's book, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he discusses, uh, I think it's there, where he discusses uh, Tristan and Isolde. Mm -hmm. Great old story uh, where Tristan is a young man who's in love with Isolde, who's in Ireland, and he's in England. And he sets out, he finds himself on a small boat, like a little sailboat, apparently. And he has no rudder, and he has uh, no way to control the boat at all. And uh, so there he is, he's sailing, to his love, but he has no way of getting there. You know, he, he can't control the, the route. And Campbell says that the way, in his wonderful commentary on that, he says that he's teaching us, that story is teaching us to, to surrender ourselves to the guidance of life. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, and that's a wonderful thought, I think. And that goes against this idea of having a purpose. You might say that a soul had a purpose, but he just had a love. He was compelled by love. And uh, so uh, the other thing is that in my work, I make a great deal of things like the muse, the angel, the daimon, 
these voices that guide us or these presences that guide us, urges that might guide us. Mm. And, um, and you can't pay attention to those. You can't follow them if you're, if you're in charge. So a purpose there would get in the way. I go to the, it's so contrary to what we would call ego psychology, you know, the, Oh yeah. Our, our modern, our modern healing containers, which are just soaking in uh, productivity and. Well, see, I think think it's deeply religious because I think the essence of religion, well, there are a couple of essences, but one of them is that you, that you trust it's called faith. You know, it's an old old word, faith. That you have faith in life itself and you let life direct you instead of having to be in charge and know where you're headed. Uh, I think that's a religious point of view rather than a secular one. And that's what I'm always trying to do as I'm trying to restore a religious attitude because I think that's the best way to get soul into life is to... Mm-hmm act with a religious attitude rather than a secular one. Secular is almost identical at times anyway with ego. Say, say more about that. That, that rang a bell. <laughs> well, uh, ego is about uh, knowing what you're doing uh, and uh, being in charge mm-hmm. and taking responsibility. Uh, I think all those things are way overdone. <laughs> I agree. So, so, you know, I think it's a religious attitude to to listen for the signs. You know, it's, I mean, before in ancient times, people would say, let the angel guide you. Well, we don't, I, today I don't speak of angels much, although I would love to have become an angelologist when, at a certain point in my life, because people misunderstand. They think about beings who are physically in the air mm-hmm. somewhere. I'm not, that's not how it is. It's that life itself has certain uh, guidances, guidance in it. And uh, we can picture that as a diamond, an angel, or muse, something like that. But it's, it's a presence or it's a, an influence that you sense. And you don't have to say where it comes from. Don't get into that question. That's the bad question. Don't try to figure it out. Just say, okay, this happens. And some people have used their imagination and they've painted this thing, this presence as an angel or, you know, something else that they told stories. And so uh, to me, then, this is a very religious thing to do, to to let life happen and to uh, adjust yourself and to read, especially read the signs, read the signs that are going on. I, I love the, uh, I started learning Greek a bit and um, the, the, the term angelo, you know, we get this, the, the messenger, you know, and yes. we've of course painted the face of that message with a messenger that's relatable. And then we've lost the ability to listen to these little whispers. Exactly, little whispers. The people they whisper in your ear. They don't really do that, and you don't actually hear it so much as you are aware of a message. Mm. Uh, my friend uh, James Hillman has a something on YouTube now, a talk that he gave where he was he studied under Jung, 
a bit. He didn't have much to do with Jung, but some, because Jung was quite old by the time that Hillman got to Zurich. But at any rate, uh, he tells a story that he went to Jung's wake and he was in this room with uh, Jung's body and maybe a couple other people in the room. And he stood there in the presence of Jung's body. And as he was leaving, he he says he came away knowing that he had now to go on with his own life, mm. his own work, uh, not Jung's, his own work. And uh, he presented in such a way, he didn't say that this is what came to me. He really didn't say that. He didn't say this. He said, this is what I left with, indicating that he got this message in that situation mysteriously you know it just there's something about these things that come to us that are very certain you can trust them uh you have to use your your intelligence with it but you can trust them most of the time and then for him that was a very important message and i th i thought that was a very good example of this kind of living where you you uh you're quiet like he was in this room quietly and he got that message. It was so quiet that he didn't say it was a voice. He just said that he got the message, put it in the kind of a passive voice. And I think that's pretty good. Hmm. I do too. What a different, it, it, the busyness, the, if anything, given how uh, filled up we are all the time with, how accessible we are, you know, the, to create moments of quiet. Um, it, I, I talk to a lot of people who one of the recommendations I make is to drive in their car without music on. And I'm like you, I'm a musician. And so it's kind of an odd thing to say in a time where you can connect with music so much, but just to listen and be silent and respond and have a practice of getting from here to there without having to be on your phone or listen to tunes. And people look at me like I'm a little crazy when I say that. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, well, it is crazy in a certain sense. It's what they call platonic madness. Platonic madness <laughs> is a good thing. Plato talked about different ways we have to be creatively out of our minds. And mm. that's what I would call it, a platonic madness. That means you really, you need to get into this. That's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, so before we get into this idea further of, of a Western practice of emptiness, a thought comes to mind about AA. I've really been thinking a lot about AA and the way that those principles function. And one of the beautiful things about these steps that are, are principles by which somebody can live their life is that they first have to rec recognize that there's a problem. Like, I got a problem. There's a problem with the way I live my life, choices that I make. And then there's a, a, a seeking out of a higher power. And that scares a lot of, that's always a lot of problem for people because they imagine a big guy in the sky with a beard. And what I like about what you're saying that I think clicks into this is, no, the higher power is that you're, you're emptying out and saying, I'm receptive. Um, I'm receptive to some kind of new way of being or new new source of relationship um, with my inner life and then I live out all the rest of these principles and kind of have a broader existence so we've we've been doing this on some level 
Um, I just think our image of the higher power is problematic. Would, would you, because you talk about this in the book, that there are practices of emptying one's understanding of God. And so can we, can we get into this and talk about, because that, that, from a Christian perspective especially, that doesn't make much sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. I know it does. <laughs> uh, okay, we have an idea of God. Uh, if you read the theologians, the ancient theologians like Thomas Aquinas and, and others around him, um, they describe God as ineffable. That means you can't really talk about God. Uh, once you speak, you've, you've made a mistake. You're saying the wrong thing. You know, it's like the Tao Te Ching says, you know, the he who knows does not speak. Um, and it's a very common thing. You don't, for, for in the Jewish tradition, you don't speak, you use the name of God. Um, it's There's a reason for that, and very good reason when you think about it, because when a lot of people today have used the name God, they well, usually they end up in fights because they somebody else doesn't have the same idea they have the same definitions and way of talking about it. And so it's been very, very bad in human history to for people to use the word God, I think. It's been a big problem. Mm -hmm. So you have to empty that out somehow. How do you empty it? Well, um, I I give a talk sometimes that I say, I say, um, I rarely use the name God. That's how I put it. Once in a while I do, but very rarely, very, very rarely. I think that's a pretty good suggestion because you don't have to put a you know interdict or rule about it but you can say be cautious and don't use that word too often unless you really are at a point where when you use that word you evoke the infinite the ineffable the invisible the the uh, that which can't be understood if you can evoke all that in the way you use the word God, fine. But if you can't, then you, you're filling it in with something. Hmm. Because if there's anything that is empty, it is God. That means because we can't understand what we're talking about there. Anyone who says they do understand it, I wouldn't trust very much because mm -hmm. the very by definition, you can't understand God. And if you get to that point in your understanding of God that way, I think that uh, you begin to live a religious life. You are open to the mysteries around us. You're open to uh, indications of what to do with your life. Um, all these things become available. So to me, the emptying out of God is one of the most important things in our society that we could do. Well, you're. is it okay to translate that by saying you're you're creating a practice that recognizes the inevitability of assumptions and preconditions and expectations but your practice is to let those um you know uh, leak out <laughs> i think to use your, yeah. your yeah, term, let it leak out and not become so fixed and so that you're more of a receptive vessel for that which can't be spoken as opposed to the possessor of some specialized knowledge or relationship. Fair to say? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I would never trust a teacher 
who says he knows entirely what he's talking about. I don't care what it is he's talking about or she. So the um, uh, we have to empty empty that uh, our own certainties, and we have to empty um, our favorite language uh, mm. for important things. Mm -hmm. We have to empty our uh, uh, our the feeling that we are special, that we, mm. you know, have a special place, therefore we know things. I think you have to empty so much. Uh, and that's great because it's an ongoing process and you have to do it every day. And uh, you, when you do that, you'll find that life becomes much richer and you understand things at a much, deep, much deeper level. Mm. I have that in my experience, and I there is this tendency for us to grasp, and so so I think having an idea like emptiness is positing that we have a tendency to grasp, and so our practice is a release. Like you're going to would would it be fair to say that your ego or your existence is going to grasp to possess and hold and so the practice the spiritual practice of emptying is somewhat compensatory for this inevitability at times it is <laughs> yes i would say definitely is it's at times a way of responding to uh yeah i think people have these these urges and needs uh need to understand things that are not understandable need to have language that is really clear when things are not clear and a need to have a teacher who knows everything when nobody knows everything so yeah there's a mm -hmm. kind of a, a reaction maybe a response to the uh, tendency that we all have i think we all have it with us to um, right away look for an explanation mm -hmm. So if I use the word angel, I'm sure many people are going to say, do you mean angels really exist? Mm -hmm. you know, well, yeah, I do, but I don't at the same time. Maybe not exist in the same way you're thinking. Mm -hmm. but as we talk now, I'm thinking of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. I think I did quote him in the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, was in, he was put in prison for being involved in a plot against Hitler. And he was a uh, a minister in Germany. And uh, he wrote uh, letters to his friend, to a friend of his from prison when he was put in prison for, I think it was about two years he was in prison. But but uh, to be hanged eventually. Mm -hmm. And he wrote these letters and one of the things he said was that, he said, I'm a pastor, I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor. And I feel uncomfortable when people use the word God. He said, how can that be? You know, I'm the pastor. But he said, it's what, what, what they mean by it, what I mean by it are two different things. And he said there that we should live, in those letters, he said we should live as though God were not given. That's the word he uses, given, not given, uh, in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a paraphrase, but that's pretty close it, to what I said. It's such a 
it's such a practice, you know, to, it's not a belief. It, it seems like a practice, you have this, the, the nature of the way in which this organism being functions, and I, I have this practice that can allow for me to receive, and that, I heard that a while ago that we, my friend who's a priest, he was, James Durkitz, he was talking about moving from orthodoxy to orthopraxis. And I've always loved that so much. Uh It's different than just coming together and doing the social obligation of participating in the ritual and thinking, okay, I I did that, the praxis. And this, to me, your book seems like it's, it's providing a framework for this praxis. Um, so let's let's link this up in a kind of Christian approach because I, I we talked about it before years ago, so I want to just tip the hat for a moment because something you said earlier that seems like it stands out is that you went to seminary at 13, which, <laughs> which is a story I've always loved. And so I want to ask you a Jesus question. Um, and, and of course, what... You know what moved you into seminary at thirteen, and what predisposes a child to uh, to be interested in living an empty life of the monastic world? Well, the only way I can understand it is that it's really hard to talk about because I could easily easily be misunderstood. Mm. But I can understand it as. My leaving my family, whom, whom, I, whom I loved very, very much. I had a wonderful mother and father and brother and and then grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts and very big and warm, supportive family. And I loved it. And leaving that was like, I, I can't describe how painful it was. And I still feel homesick today from that. I still wish I had didn't have to do that. But I did it because I was so overwhelmed uh with uh with desire for Mm. life i think in some way and i think what that did for me was to put me in the direction of where i am today you know i mean i'm just saying where i am today but what i mean by that is that this is the way my life has turned out and and to me it's a meaningful life and if i had stayed in the family i can't imagine how i could have been here at this point leaving home at that time early on really allowed me to deeply get interested in these things that you and I are talking about today. And and to be able to, you know, I, I see my life work as trying to take the wonderful traditions all around the world for these mysteries and present them in a way that people can relate to maybe not fully understand, but at least relate to and uh, take take on in some way. And I think that's what happened. At 13, I left so that I could do this work. I don't think that, you know, there was a hand guiding me or, you know, something in the sky guiding me. But I don't know. It could be. Could it, it could be a flying saucer, as far as I'm concerned. It could be so many things. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that I was guided. Uh, by and the the only way I could have left home would have been a tremendous desire to move on somehow because my attachment to my family was so great 
the only thing way it could have been done. And I think that's what happened to me. Hmm. That must have been, I just project onto your folks, you know, how, how the challenging that would have been. It's amazing that they um, allowed that to happen. Yes, they, my mother objected. She, she tried to persuade me not to do it. And it was really hard for me because I love my mother so much and it was so hard to, to do that. But I'm just saying that my desire was so strong that I was able to stay with it. Wow. So as you moved into seminary away from your um, family of birth into your spiritual family, you know, this, I, I'm curious about how, because that's got to be wild. I mean, to be, to be in a monastery and learning a tradition in a way that doesn't concretize it so much. You know, I, I'm projecting onto the seminary because the seminarians I've known have a pretty evolved theology. These tend to be pretty brilliant folks that um, use language like this, like have a um, have an evolved understanding that at times feels a little more Eastern than it does Western, um, that, that monastic life. So this, oddly enough, I'm on question two uh, in our interview today, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in what ways can the teachings of Jesus about self-emptying be applied to in our personal lives and relationships and careers? Because I think we misunderstand this image of Christ. Uh, it seems to me that Jesus is a figure who addresses our day-to-day -day living. I love the fact that the first story told in the Gospel of John is about his attending a wedding party. Uh, how many spiritual leaders would be presented that way? I don't mm -hmm. think that's the way the Buddha is shown, you know, being at a wedding party, mm -hmm. making wine. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think most people would expect that. And yet that's what we get. And so I think we should take that seriously, that this, this following, what follows in that gospel, we've got the first story. Now what follows is all related to that opening story, which means that uh, uh, we're, this is all about have, living a life of pleasure and joy and community and celebration and marriage. Mm that uh, this is all this is all human very very human and that's what he's coming to do to make it happen so in this case he makes wine that's pretty important at a wedding party i guess in certain places anyway and um so that puts it in the realm i would say that makes the his whole philosophy epicurean which i i, I say i like to say that because Epicurus was a philosopher who taught that pleasure is the main principle in life. Mm. Not not uh, hedonism, not entertainment and overdoing it, but just the opposite. He, he said like modest pleasure, like friendship, is, is one of the pleasures that is so important in life. And yes, eating, dining with friends is, very, is part of it too. And that's what Jesus did, you know, I mean, he not only had went to the wedding party after that he's at one dinner after another and he's cooking food and food eating is really one of the big parts of the activities of the gospels there's a whole book written about jesus and and eating in the gospels so uh i think that if we start with that 
we we can understand we're not talking about some austere remote spirituality in some ways jesus i would say he was not a spiritual teacher at all he was a soul teacher soul meaning closer to life and deep in the heart and about relationships and home and family and pleasure and fun and play that's all soul stuff i think he was more of a soul teacher than a spiritual teacher he definitely had some spirit in there uh, no question about that but i don't think it's the main thing if you read those stories closely say, say more about the difference of what spirit, spirit and soul yeah well uh uh soul is as i understand it is what makes us this is what the old ancient teachers taught they said soul is what makes us human and it's what uh connects a body and spirit and uh it's really in the mid realm that's not too far from the buddhist teaching mm -hmm. it's in the mid realm and it's uh it's it's not high up there. It's not extreme into the spirit. Yes, there's some spirituality. There has to be. Soul always has some spirituality involved. But it is, at the same time, tethered, you might say, to daily life and to the ordinary aspects of life that uh, have to do with uh, what we, you know, we, we call it psyche today. and But psyche really is the Greek word for soul. So it's about the soul. So it's the difference between psychology and spirituality. The soul would be more in the psychological sphere, probably. Mm. Although, as I said, spirit always has something to do with it. Uh, this is an old teaching of the soul being lower. I, I could I could show you uh, from hundreds of years ago uh, maps of soul and spirit. And it shows the spirit with uh, angels in the sphere of the angels. And it shows the soul and the spirit of the planets and the sphere of the planets, which influence life, which are guiding life, speaking astrologically. Is, so, is, it, is uh, this a Gnostic reference? No, it's not. It's uh, it, that that idea comes out of Robert Flood, who was a mm -hmm. uh, Magus in the 17th century in England. Uh, but he's picking up on an old tradition. You can find these images in very old manuscripts as well. Much far, much older than that, but they're oh. very clear flood. Yeah, I'm going to go looking. Yeah, you go look. They're wonderful. If you look at it, just see it as a map of how how we're put together, with the and he has all these divisions. So you have the all the different choirs of angels at the top, and then you've got the planets in the middle. At the very bottom, you have the human body. You know, it's uh, it's I think that's. That kind of thing, it's called Neoplatonic, if you want to mm -hmm. name for it. It's a Neoplatonic view of life that uh, many, many people over the centuries have picked up and made it made their own in their own ways. I like particularly Robert Flood's uh, charts that he makes and images that he makes for this whole thing. And it makes it very clear that soul is related to life, daily life. Like I said, home uh family play things like that when and, you re sorry keep going oh, sorry. no spirit is different it spirit is equally valuable but it's it takes us beyond human humanity really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. soul gives us our humanity the spirit takes us beyond to transcend our humanity which is a very valuable thing 
That's great, Thomas. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm going to follow that yellow brick road. Uh, <laughs> as you're talking about Jesus and pleasure, uh, you, of course, made this reference, and a, f- a friend of mine, Brian Marescu, made this reference in his work. You know, many before us have made this reference about Dionysus and Christ. And it, it's interesting that in the tradition of, uh, w- when you read the Greek tradition, Dionysus is much, it's much more obvious, the pre- pleasure principle that's being connected there. We lose it a little bit. It's a little more hidden with Christ. Would you talk about this connection between Dionysus and Christ? It's usually made in reference to the story of the Cana that I was referring to, the yes. wedding feast at Cana. That's where they usually talk about Jesus. Of course, it's also there in the Last Supper when Jesus says that this is my blood. Mm-hmm. Mine is my blood. That's pretty Dionysian. You know, you can't, <laughs> can't escape that. So it's there. And... Um, uh, the connection is, you know, when it comes to sacred texts or almost any any uh, imaginative texts, you have to pay close attention to images. They may only be briefly uh, present, then they go off. Other things happen. But you pay attention to Im- any image that is present is going to be strong in influencing the message of the text. So if you have Jesus making wine and then saying this, you know, this wine is my blood. That's plenty to to see that he has a strong Dionysian side. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Dionysus was a Greek god, who was in this in his story as a child, as an infant, was torn apart by the Titans, torn apart. And Jesus, they relate that to Jesus being on the cross, that his body was was just wrapped, you know, in that image of him being torn apart. And um, so there is the Dionysian element as well. And among the Greeks then, uh, Dionysus, because that torn apart refers to your mind as well, that like when you drink wine, you can lose your control, lose a sense. You you say and do things that you wouldn't say if you weren't drinking wine. Uh, and that can be seen as a metaphor or an extended saying that this is any kind of uh, a situation where your mind is not fully at work, where it is kind of kind of uh, ripped apart, uh, that could be Dionysian. And what that does, it, it offers an intensity of life at the same time as it offers death. So mm-hmm. with Dionysus, you see death and life being almost uh, overlapping with each other. And there's a kind of dying that goes on in finding new life. Of course, that's the whole story of Jesus and uh, and Dionysus as well. And the main source for Dionysus, do you want me to go on? Please, I love this stuff, yes. The main source of Dionysus is a play by Euripides called Penthia, uh, called uh, Bacchae, called yes. the Bacchae. Uh, Bacchus was a name for Dionysus. Uh, or for a god very closely related to Dionysus, a god of the wine, of wine. And in this play of Euripides, there is a man, Pentheus, who is the ruler of a city, and Dionysus comes to his city and calls people together into a sort of wild ritual outside mm-hmm. the city. And Pentheus says, I can't allow this. You know, this is destroying our civilization. 
So Pentheus sort of represents this resistance to the Dionysian. And other people in the play go out to join uh, Dionysus and they they take part in the ritual and they really become, uh, they, they, they kind of lose their mind and lose control. And I think that's what this, this play is so important to show us what that's all about and how we naturally, some, a Pentheus in us, resist the Dionysian as yeah. well. I'm I'm actually currently reading it, and it's taking me a while. I'm kind of meandering through that Euripides, and it it brings up the they call it the Bacchic yell or the the yeah. expression, you know. But the thing that stands out about that play at the beginning is this: when they're going out to do these ceremonies, they're talking about being cleansed by the gods, right. and I, Peter Kingsley talks about this that we're um, we 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 oftentimes are asking God or, or or the gods for something, whether it be a parking place or a whatever. Um, and and he makes this really beautiful in, in Catafalque. He makes this beautiful framework at the very beginning, saying we're we're not asking how to be of service to the gods. And and I think you know again this empty me and allow me to be a vessel is a totally different orientation than the Christianity that I grew up in. And it's one of the reasons I get so excited about reading this Greek material, and 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 certainly what makes me so excited about Euripides. Well, I think that it's a very good idea to. I always say, if you're going to read Carl Jung, read him through Hillman, read Hillman at the same time, and if you're going to study Christianity, study the Greeks. Yeah. At the same time, because you will find. Uh, very useful parallels, and it will keep you from becoming too literal. It'll empty out that uh, tendency to make this your only uh, point of view. Okay, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to dive into the Hillman-Jung dynamic. <laughs> Would you speak more about that? Because I notice in Jungian circles, you know, that's kind of one of my traditions, and many folks will critique Hillman because and here's the the typical criticism is that he's a deconstructionist and he just kind of rips everything apart and leaves it lays it bare on the floor so what's your take on this dynamic between Hillman and Jung you know you have to know that he and I were very close friends for 38 years yes and uh I was I was very very attached to his way of thinking from before he published uh, book, any books and uh, he and I were buddies and we got both of us, we would go out to speak together and very often we got uh, treated badly because th those attitudes toward his work. I never had that myself. Yeah. I find him, I do know, you know, he was, a, he, he was someone who pointed out what he thought were weaknesses and things. He didn't treat people easily. He, he, he wanted to challenge everyone. Mm -hmm. Get them to think, for one thing, and uh, so there's that in him. But uh, knowing him so well, I never felt ever felt that he was uh, approaching anything negatively or destructively, yeah. or even deconstructively. And uh, and I think he what he gives us is tremendously solid and and useful and uh, good guidance. Uh, all of his books. 
uh, do that. And he, I think his greatest gift was that you give him anything at all to talk about, and he would start talking in ways you had never thought of. Wow. You know, he just had a whole new, fresh imagination of everything. You never, you know, you're sitting there waiting all oh, the usual kind of language and ideas. You wouldn't get them because he would, he, first of all, he would never take a question or a topic on its own terms. He would always make it his own. And then he would uh, explore it in ways that were so imaginative and yet rooted in tradition and solid. He, he'd mm -hmm. argue with, you know, He'd give you a very good argument for everything he said. Sure. And today it bothers me a little bit because today people are criticizing him right and left. And I would give anything, including Peter, by the way, who's also a friend of mine, Peter Kingsley. Yeah. Uh, if you, uh, if you, uh, you know, are arguing and trying to take him down today and, uh, and, you know, he's not here to defend himself. Yeah. No, he'd be the, he'd be there putting his gloves on, ready to get into the fight. You get that sense from him. I've read a lot of Hillman, and I, I, uh, I'm, I find myself enjoying his work. I struggle with it, you know. Like I struggle, I, I struggle as I get into it, and um, but I, I, I guess you've given me a gift by saying that if you're going to read Young, you need to also read Hillman because. It, it does keep you from falling into this more concretistic grasping, you know, this, as even Jung said, you know, I'm not a Jungian. And it seems like what you're saying is to integrate both Hillman's perspective and Jung's perspective can prevent that. Um, it's a bit of a fundamentalist framework, you know, to fall into that fundamentalism. Totally, yeah. I always tell people that I never became a Jungian because I was a Catholic and I don't want another Pope. <laughs> I mean, that's just it's true. There's a tendency to a big papa, you know, a big father yeah, yeah. figure. Um, now, uh, with I, a good example of what you're talking about is Hillman's book, Anima. He wrote a book called mm -hmm. that, which is on one page, as you look at it, the left page is, are all quotes from Jung and the right page is all passages from Hillman. And with and done with great respect, he's not there to tear Jung down at all. He's there to say, well, I think this is fantastic, but this other thing here just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And he explores those things. For example, I might as well give an example. So he Please. says, look, he says that um, he quotes Jung saying that the anima is the unconscious life of a man. And that's probably there because women are able to live out and and articulate their anima, and men aren't. And and Hillman then comes in and says, well, you know, I don't like this sexual, this gender mm. uh, limitation on anima and animus. He said, why don't we just make it open to everybody and realize that we all have to have to deal with and relate to anima and animus in ourselves. And that gender issue is probably out of date at this point. So, you know, to me, that's very convincing. And that was Agreed. liberal liberating to me to be able yeah. to talk about the anime without all the gender talk. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I, uh, I'm glad you said that because it's, it's what I find myself teaching in the first place, the, the limit, you know, we had this idea of the contrasexual position in the original Jungian framework, uh, but then looking at it as an energetic um, movement, you know, that yeah. I think that's much more healthy. Um, 
and we certainly can disregard the 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 energy and then the gender and then the sex dynamic that ends up combining together and creating an awful lot of confusion for people a lot of confusion and yeah and and biases and all kinds of problems but you have to remember that Hilma wrote that book quite early. I don't remember the date of that one, but it mm. must have been 1980-something. And um, and it, and saying that at that time was not as easy to do as it mm -hmm. is today. So he did get a lot of criticism, I think, at that time. And he, I, I think there's much more openness today. Mm -hmm. how, how did Care, Care of the Soul impact or influence your relationship with him? I don't know. You know, I have to ask him. Um, I really don't know. We talked about it a little bit. Uh, he told me once, one thing that's related to it, he told me once, uh, he said, look, you're doing a lot of writing. And he said, it's really, that you're going in a good direction yourself. And he said, would you please stop quoting me all over the place? And said, you don't have to do that. You know, he said, just write write the ideas. That's we beautiful. He said, we share these ideas. So uh, that that's the basis for, a basis for me to feeling that he was fine. And he gave me a beautiful endorsement on that book. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said that care of the soul will last longer than psychology. Mm -hmm. well, that's mm -hmm. pretty good. He would normally, he was usually pretty reticent. So I felt I took that comment pretty seriously. I felt I that bet he, you did. Yeah. So and then we just had a good time ever after. You know, we we would get together and laugh most of the time. You know, we laugh about everything. You know, the most serious things we would. And he had a big laugh, and and both of us just just laughed about things, and we enjoyed that. So, uh, but then the New York Times came out with an article saying that the New York Times Magazine. Saying that I had stolen everything from Hellman and made money on it, and he didn't. Mm. So that was a problem we had to deal with, and uh, we talked about it a lot and and resolved that. We, he and I had never been at odds about any of that stuff. You know, we used to go shopping together. That's the way like the way we enjoyed doing. We were not we were not there battling each other on the on the plane of ideas. We were enjoying life and, and having fun and playing with ideas a lot mm -hmm. and sharing most most of it. The only the only part that where he and I differed was in the realm of spirituality. He used to call me that call me, he said, You're a monk. And he would say it with disdain. <laughs> and, uh, he hated that. And and I just took it as fun, you know, because, but I knew that he also didn't like, he used to always refer to Christianism instead of Christianity. And I thought that was really, really bad taste. Well, uh, is it, is that because the, the, uh, he, my projection onto Hillman is this, again, I, I, I use the term to deconstruct is to almost do what we're talking about doing, like, to try to prevent the congealing that can tend to happen. And so my immediate projection onto that is that when you become an ism or you align yourself with a tradition, you renounce certain emptiness. Is that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure that's what he intended. 
<laughs> That's fun to hear, Thomas. Thanks for that. Uh, th this side road we've gone on about your relationship with him. Powerful figure. I've got most of his books, um, yeah. but challenging. You know, like I've I read Emotion, his book called Emotion, that I really liked. Oddly enough, I'd never stumbled onto anybody who really took that subject on, and I was I was glad he did. Absolutely, yes. That was kind of the origin. I think that was his first publication. Yeah, it was good. Uh, uh, so I want to jump back into something that we share, which is your is music. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you talk about a speaking of emptiness, a stringless lute. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in this idea of how music has influenced your understanding of spirituality and soul and emptiness. Could you speak about that? It's difficult to articulate. It's, it's there for sure, but I find it difficult to articulate. One of the things I, I can tell you more experientially is that I'm a classical musician and uh, for the most part, and I, uh, I find myself most mornings going to the piano and deciding what to play on the piano. And uh, hmm. then I go to write. I, I try to go directly from the piano to where, to my computer to write because I I want to bring that spirit that I have found in one of these composers to my work and my writing. So uh, there, that's one way in which uh, music has affected me directly, practically. And I, when I reflect on it, I, I think that, for example, I like to, well, any, any good composer I, I, I play, let's say I play a lot of Bach, J.S. Bach, and fugues and things like that that he wrote. And, and I think what he did was, he, you know, he's very intellectual. He set up a problem in music, like with three notes. It's it's oral. It's all the art, but still, it's kind of intellectual at the same time. So, you set up these three notes, and they probably in him they probably have some reference to some idea or theology or something. He always had references like that. And uh, one of his biographers even says that he had when you, the the paintings of him shown with six buttons on his shirt. You know, refer, referring to certain pattern of notes mm -hmm. and, uh, everything had meaning and mm -hmm. but he set up a problem in music he wanted to write a fugue on this he wanted to offer, maybe he wanted the and I, I could show you this in one piece of his he wanted these three notes to be the composition and no others just those three and let's say a three minute piano piece mm -hmm. only three those three notes now moved around, moved upside down, extended, put in different keys, all of that, but still the same three notes all the way through. There's a piece of his that I know, one of his fugues, that has this three notes and nothing else except maybe a couple fillers here and there, just in like an ending or something like that. So he's doing that and he's trying to work it out. So I, I'm, I have, you know, I'm, I'm playing it and I know this is what's happening as I play. I see that he has taken these three notes and he has turned them upside down now. And now he has made them stretch out to be very long notes. And now he's repeating them over and over again. And he's doing all these things. And I'm thinking this as I play it because I, you know, I've studied this stuff and I, I, I'm interested in it. And uh, then I go to write my book and I'm thinking, well, 
I, I need some economy. That, that's called musical economy, compositional economy, meaning you don't use, you don't waste a lot of notes. You just use three notes. And so when I'm writing a book, I may want that book to be economical hmm. in that artistic sense. I don't want to have all kinds of new ideas coming out all over the place. I don't want to start new things always. I want to take something and work it like a few where I'm going to be doing maybe some ideas from a different angle and turning them around so that I can explore them. I'm thinking musically as I go. Mm. That is helpful. You write music, yes? Yes. Do you produce it? Is it available? I'm trying to think. Uh, I have uh, I haven't written any music for a performance in quite a while. Um, what it, you know, like one of my some of my choral music was performed at by the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra and their choral. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Michigan State University did some performances and, uh, you know, I've had things like that, but I've never, I've never made a thing of it. No, I mean, I, I stopped being a composer, you know, when I went to the University of Michigan to study and it was a very good school. And when I finished, I thought, you know, I'm, this is not me. I can't go as far in this as I would need to. Mm -hmm my nine needs of success and what I do. So I let it go and I focused then on, I got a degree in religious studies and went from there. So it's not that I have abandoned music, but I've, I haven't followed up on it, like making it a career in any way. But you play daily. I do, I play every almost every day, yeah. Would you consider that a spiritual practice? I would, yeah, definitely. No question. Absolutely. I agree. I'm jealous of the piano. I'm a guitarist. Yeah. And I, I play in a band with a classically trained pianist. Oh. And I I get to uh <laughs> I get to be on the proverbial stage with a fella that I would pay to see play music, you know, <laughs> or to oh, listen. Yeah. And it's it's such he's he's revolutionizing my understanding of music because I come from I am not theory I don't understand theory I uh, we would call that in the studio we would call that I'm an ear I learn by ear right. I mean I took okay. lessons but I don't read music and okay. so it's very much intuitive and, and and then there's this mentality of like following the notes and learning the notes and learning the theory and. Um, and I just never did that. And so I ended up playing in like honky tonks and rock venues and not, <laughs> not a symphony. Well, I envy that because uh, my daughter is a very successful musician hmm. and uh, uh, she, she, she's an ear. She plays by ear. And I tried to teach her uh, all my she theory. Won. She was young, but <laughs> she didn't want anything to do with it. And then she was being influenced by friends of mine who were musicians who didn't want like, you know, reading notes either. But um, I, so I admire it and respect it a great deal. And uh, you know, most of, I have so many friends who play, play music by ear and they, what they are doing. What my daughter does in her compositions to me is 
absolutely amazing. Wow. Very, what I would consider very high level music, but she's not, she doesn't know the theory very much. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm, I love theory and I love being able to play a piece and know what's going on. Yeah, it's something typological there. It's it's very interesting. Um, whatever that is, I, 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 I think I've probably learned how to read music twice in my life, but I don't, re re I don't recall it. And now my new instrument is the flute. I play this native wind uh, six-hole oh, yeah. flute, which I, to yes. me, that's more of a meditation. I play the flute and the drum, and it's totally meditative. Uh, body beautiful because the guitar seems kind of different um, so i, I want to jump ship from our conversation about music and get into marriage you know you you offer this idea it's a different spiritual practice um, yeah. you offer this idea of an empty marriage and mm -hmm. i would you speak to that a little bit let's talk about kind of romantic relationship and marriage well there i want to propose this idea that in relationship when you're with somebody to like my motivation there is actually to plant this seed for folks about being in relationship with another human without these kinds of expectations without the ideas of who they are who i need them to be and how these concepts of empty emptiness might play out in relationship to other people so that's really what i'm trying to get at yeah, I just... get it. yeah. well yes there are so many ways in which emptiness can be very useful and uh working on relationships. For one, I'm just thinking of a therapy hour I did this morning, um, where one person in the in the marriage uh, feels they have to, they have to really make the other person do things correctly or to, you know, even if it means expressing them their feelings or, you know, whatever, it, uh, no matter what it is, no matter how good the idea might be, I do think marriage calls for a lot of emptiness where you allow things to happen, allow the other person to have have his or her own life. And uh, that's not easy because there's something about marriage that brings along with it quite unconsciously, perhaps culturally, I'm not really sure, the idea that um, that now I own this person or that, yeah. you know, I'm in charge now or that, you know, I've got to, he's got to, he or she has to do what I expect and want. Mm -hmm. All that's got to be emptied so that the other person can have a rich, full life without your interference. That doesn't mean without your participation and engagement, mm -hmm. you know, totally. But there's a difference between being fully engaged and, and needing to have that person be the person that you expect and want and think is best. I think that uh, it's like children. It's very similar to mm -hmm. children. That has to be empty, too, for parents. Mm -hmm. to allow the child to become who they are, not who you want them to be. That's, oh, that's, that's tough. Yeah. That's empty. That's emptying the parent the parent role, and it's uh, emptying in the very positive sense because it allows the parenting to take place without all of that controlling stuff. Oh, God, that brings up something for me, I guess, that just the anxiety around... Um how how possessed how possessed and possessive so much of our parenting is that that we cling to it and as opposed to i got a friend of mine who wrote a book called the conscious parent shifali sabari and she talks about that that so much of our parenting is playing out 
you know, our own adaptive and maladaptive patterns from our development and, uh, and then clinging to that and projecting those expectations onto, mm -hmm. onto others. Uh, that certainly brings up a lot about, cause I, I then immediately go into how in the world do you do that? How would you propose being an empty parent? <laughs> well, you know, there's a this. If I can speak about Hillman once more, sure. I think there's a close relationship between uh, traditions of emptiness, like in Zen Buddhism, and uh, and Hillman's work. In fact, he had uh, frequently. I'd go to his house, and he'd have some Japanese Buddhists visiting mm -hmm. him, and I think that that really showed that his work has a, is very con, um, consistent with emptiness. And in, in this sense, that for the parents, see the way, I think the way he and, and I would uh, look at the parent-child thing is, is really look at the archetypal child. And, and therefore empty our notion of child of its literalness and its actualness. And to realize, and Jung does this too in his essay on the child, which is mm. a remarkable thing. In his essay on the archetype of the child, long essay of Jung, he says that I'm not talking about real children. I'm talking mm. here about like what happens when in your life you're beginning something. Suddenly the child will appear in your dream or might appear in your fantasy and you're the mm. way you feel. So it's an archetypal child, an archetypal parent that we really, really have to get to if we want to touch what's important and not talk about how to manage parents and, and all that kind of thing. It's, it's too literal. If I could, I want to share a dream that just came up that I happen to be engaging in some new developments in my life. And I had this dream a few weeks ago that was a, it was very quick. It was a, there was a little boy who was probably five and he was talking to me and asking me for help. And then this huge figure, probably eight foot tall black man genie, he's a massive genie with this big hood, you know, he takes his hand and doesn't push me out of the way, but moves me out of the way like this. And I just remember the sensation of his arm. It was so strong. And he, he, he wasn't, again, it was, the sensation of it was fascinating because he wasn't getting me like that. It was, he moved me there and held me there. And then he started talking to the child, dream ends. Mm -hmm. And I, I took that as such a, a powerful image for where I'm heading with this endeavor. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you, not, not to ask you in, to interpret my, my dream, but I'm wondering in this context, if you have any thoughts about that. Sure. It's, it seems to me pretty clear that way that, uh, that when we are doing a project uh, and we really want it to succeed, you have to, if, if you can only tune in to this imaginal archetypal level to realize that this project is not going to succeed if you do it. <laughs> it's not going to work. What you have to do is elicit, conjure up, invite in the real powers. In other words, the, the real producer, the real maker, 
who is big and tough like your dream figure would mm -hmm. be it's a lot stronger than you are you, you know you're pretty small in comparison to that and it's like for me writing a book if i if i felt i had to write my books i never have anything done <laughs> i do everything to evoke a spirit yeah. to come in and do the work and you know i'll pay them when they finish <laughs> and you, uh, it's it, it, you can feel that you can sense that you can actually uh, sense the presence of some other maker doer creator mm -hmm. and you, it's your job to to make sure that they're that they're welcome and that you're willing to get out of the way which is an empty phrase emptiness phrase get yeah. out of the way and uh and let the let the figures do their work i th thank you for honoring that dream in that way um i uh I, I this is a dream it's one of the dreams that i'll carry with me for probably my whole life it it, it felt so potent and the, just the the felt sense of being stiff-armed <laughs> by this magical figure that i I was glad to be introduced to each of these individuals. Well, you know that uh, we could talk about that dream for hours. Yeah. There's so much, even though it's short, yep. there's so much in it. So I don't mean to say, oh, that's easy. This is what that means. What I mean to say is that uh, it, it does speak to our question, the question we were looking at. Right. But it says a lot more as well. Mm -hmm. It does. And What's interesting about the dream to come up in our conversation is this. I, when I was working over the dream initially, I wouldn't have been talking about emptiness. I certainly would have said, get out of the way. But now that I'm bringing all this together, it does make a lot of sense from this perspective that you're writing about of silence and emptiness. And I, I really appreciate this framework because I'll, I'll continue to take that with me. And, oh, good. And, this, yeah, this is this is just a, a window, a prism, a filter, you know, something to that you look through in order to see things. But there are hundreds of other filters too, like even for your dream. One filter might be to see that there is you, you need to empty here so that the greater power, that greater power can come in and do its job. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we might look at it through a different filter and find something else. So we have to, that's what I mean. I don't mean to, if I were to say this is what this means, I'd be betraying the very right theme of my book. Well, and I like that because the, what I like is the old religious, well, in my dissertation, a lot of tangents, in my dissertation, I wrote primarily about four different interpretive lenses upon reality but in particular i was looking at scripture and and i i don't think a lot of people get that in their theological or religious training to recognize that when we're looking at something like a dream or a myth or uh, or scripture that we need to bat it around in a way that doesn't let it become some fixed this is that and so to to broaden this a little bit even apply it to our religious texts the praxis of hey this could mean that and that could mean that and maybe that and what if it's that and then there's door number eight which is nobody knows that's right absolutely so 
Uh, you know, it's, I think that this is rare in our society because many of the things we're talking about here are not out there. Yeah. They're not being practiced out there in our world. And uh, I think what we do, many many people do today, is, and I do at times too, anyone might, you unconsciously absorb the culture's point of view and assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, you have to mm -hmm. artfully and consciously uh, break away from those those uh, habits. And uh, I think with this theme of emptiness, it really requires breaking away, being odd, being an eccentric to be able to do it. <laughs> Thank you for the permission I've been looking for my entire life to be as weird as I want to be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, so being mindful of our time, and I'm so honored by your generosity, um, I, I want to take us from a kind of the wild world of emptiness and get a little practical just for folks listening. I, I am interested in your practical steps that somebody can take in order to cultivate this praxis of uh, real emptiness, you know, like being able to be in that space. What would you say to that? I think you can, you can uh, practice this every day. Uh, well, one thing we didn't talk about, uh, about emptiness that I, to me is very interesting is, uh, how emptiness might be experienced as loss. Mm. Things. We lose people, we lose objects, we lose uh, jobs, uh, friends, uh, parents, you know. Uh, so life takes away, it's what the Greeks called Hermes. Life takes, takes away, steals things from us, takes things from us. Mm. That is an emptying process. So one way of cultivating emptiness in the practically is when you do have a loss of some kind, and you know, they can come, I think probably once a day, something, you're gonna lose something. Uh, and if you could hold that and be with it and see that there might be some value in this thing that you've lost, you might lose your keys, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. you might lose. Mm -hmm kitchen thing that you've had forever and it suddenly broke or a glass breaks on the floor. That is an opportunity to develop your approach to life that is that includes emptiness. Because what you do then is you don't you don't blame anyone for it. Because Hermes did it. You don't blame anyone. And uh you uh you don't uh determine that that's never going to happen again because you hope it happens again. You know, it's part of life, very important part of life to be taken from. And uh, you don't um, explain it. Well, this must have happened because I haven't been focusing lately. No, don't go into those explanations, those mundane explanations, ever. Whenever I hear people say them, I, I chew them out. I really go after them for doing that. So the last thing you want to do in life is offer a practical explanation for something mysterious. Mm -hmm. So um, that that is one way to to deal to bring emptiness into your daily life. When something empty happens, make something of it. Be with it. Someone doesn't show up when they say they're going to be present. Like for you, you know, you some your client doesn't show up. I know what that's like. Yep. Client doesn't show up. This is the work of Hermes. Hermes is an important figure and has usually, maybe always, something to give. 
but his manner, his method, his emptiness. So um, that's uh, that's. I think that would be a good thing. Everyday practice. You can do it intentionally as well. By uh, you can you can empty quite literally by uh, emptying out your house somewhat, emptying out your pockets, uh, <laughs> emptying so many things that because each, everything is an image and evokes even unconsciously some deeper kind of emptying. That's beautiful, Thomas. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. Um, it brought up some of these questions as I'm kind of contemplating closing our time today. And I've got two, two questions. The, the first is um, your your thoughts, you know, from a religious lens, you may not know, you may know plenty, um, but certainly what's happening in the clinical world and the religious world of psychedelics, you know, this orientation for kind of these religious experiences that people are having. And I'm wondering if you feel up to commenting on that. And also the second question would be, what else have we not talked about today that we need to discuss? Um, you know, I'm not a good person to talk about uh, psychedelics and, and use of drugs. I've, uh, um, in that respect, I'm really not a good person because I've never really been too interested in that. And I should, I suppose. I have had a couple of clients who were involved in, in some work that if like drugs for a spiritual purpose. Mm -hmm. um, the examples, the experiences I've had vicariously that way have not been good ones. I would not have a positive feeling about it. On the other hand, um, I do know, I trust the traditions and the traditions do use drugs. There's even, you know, there's even some, some interesting books written about Jesus being a mushroom. Yeah. Person, <laughs> I've read those. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, you know, I I shouldn't even waste our time because I don't have any good thoughts. That's okay. It. I was lobbing it out there just to see if you had any thoughts. But I don't. I don't. Thank you. So, what else do we need to include? What's our what threads are left hanging out that we need to get into that you like to get into often? Well, I think one thing that is important to me is uh, it came up a little bit indirectly earlier. Uh, if you read my book, and I have to refer to the book, The Eloquence of Silence, um, it consists of a number of stories and some passages from thoughts of, of uh, important leaders um, and my reflections on it. If you read that book and look, at, there are 30 stories in it. Or passages, and uh, you will find that a lot of them. I, I hope you find that they're humorous. Mm -hmm. There's some humor there, and I, I I I think that's really important part of emptiness is to be able to laugh. That's why I was referring to Hillman. I laughed a lot over serious things. Laughed a lot, you know. Really enjoyed things. 
Do we have time? I give you a yeah, please. Yeah. So I went. I went to Cape Cod to give a talk. And um, you know, I I write against using too many words, but I given I have given way too many talks in my life. (laughs) But I I went to Cape Cod to give this talk, and at the end of the talk, people are asking questions, and this woman stood up and she said, "I think everything you've been talking about is mush." And uh, so, you know, I tried to recover the best I could from that comment. And and it so happened that uh, between my between Cape Cod and my house, you can draw a line right past, right through where Hillman lived. So I stopped at his house. I called ahead and said, I'm "Going to stop by." So he was in his hospital bed. He was he was mm-hmm. going through treatments for his final cancer, and. Uh, so I went up to him and I said, uh, he's in his bed and he's lying back and he's half in morphine and all this. And I said, uh, I told him what happened. I said, Jim, I just gave this talk and this woman said that everything was mush. And he struggled to get up out of his bed and he said, she's right. <laughs> everything we're doing is mush. He said, that she is absolutely right. We, I'm glad someone said it, he said. And he was so strong. He was in a weak position, but he was so strong saying that she was right, saying it was mush. Just as an example of, uh, you know, and we laughed about that. There's something about being laughter, being able to put things in perspective. Mm. So I'll just tell you one more thing. There's one story in this book of mine. Uh, a lot of the stories, some of the stories are about a figure from the Sufis called Nasruddin, mm-hmm. who uh, is a teacher, spiritual teacher. So in this story, he's in London and he gets on a double-decker bus and goes up to the upper level of the bus. And he sits there for a while and he comes back down to the lower level. And the conductor is there and comes over to him and says, what's wrong, sir? Can I help you? And he says, there's no driver. So I think that's a quite a profound mm-hmm. story. You know, there's a driver. There's no man upstairs. We talk about the man upstairs. There's a lot in that little story, but it's kind of a humorous story at the same time. There are others like that. And I think that uh, humor tends to bring some emptiness into a lot of things. And... Uh, I think the sign of somebody who is quite stable and is able to talk about spiritual things is if they have a good sense of humor. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a there is a I, I forget who was talking about this. I, I wanna say Young may have even written about this. The concern I know Robert Johnson wrote about it, the concern for folks that don't have a sense of humor. You wanna be you wanna be mindful of that. Yeah. It's well. It goes back to what you were talking about the this Dionysian Christ pleasure dynamic. You know, being joyful, connected, expansive love. You know, the, as opposed to that kind of restricted and rigid and don't say that and this is not okay. And that's right. That's similar. Yeah. Well, you're. I, I had to. Thomas, this book is, um, it's a really lovely read. The, 
uh, certainly the way you set it up with these excerpts and stories and then kind of ways that you kind of navigated and conducted your own process associating to all the stories. I enjoyed it a lot, but primarily because this idea of emptiness is so important for, and again, I, I don't mean to say this, but for a Westerner to, that, that is so concerned about being filled up, you know, uh, wealth and, you know, the competition and kind of what we're based on in a democratic, capitalistic, individualistic culture, um, how much accumulation we take on and how scary, uh, there's that word again, um, emptiness, loneliness, waiting. You said waiting earlier, and I bet, you know, people's like heart rate spikes you know waiting is such a scary thing now and it's like the place where we get pissed off you know like you're late or why are you making me wait you know we're it's it's a net i guess what i'm getting at is how necessary this framework is for folks that are so concerned about being consumed with uh, accumulation and i'm i'm really grateful for the texts i mean all of them uh, the texts you've written um, this work in particular that we're talking about today and your willingness to connect with me and laugh a little and share your story. It's been a great pleasure, which is the best word I, I could find to use. And uh, I thank you for having me. And, for you know, it's, it's amazing for you and I to be able to have this conversation because we do share a lot of perspectives and background. Yeah. That helps. It sure does. I'm, I'm very grateful. Oh